Today's episode is brought to you by Bonsai N. Shop online with Australia's premium online bonsai store. With fast Australia-wide shipping and afterpay available. Visit www.bonsai-en.com.au That's www.bonsain.com.au where you can also find more episodes of the podcast and our YouTube channel. Modern Bonsai listeners, welcome back to another episode of the podcast. Today's guest needs no introduction, but we'll do one anyway. It is Bjorn Bjornholm. Bjorn is a Japanese-trained bonsai artist who now has his own nursery in the United States called ASAN. Bjorn also has a YouTube channel called ASAN and also hosts his own bonsai podcast called the Bonsai Network Podcast. If you haven't heard it, I suggest you go and have a listen. He shares some really great knowledge and you can find it where all good podcasts are found. I hope you enjoy this show as much as I did making it. We talk a lot about uh, apprenticeships in Japan and just some of the difference between Japanese and Western bonsai and he shares a lot of his experience with us. So sit back, relax and enjoy the show. The people that maybe haven't heard your story so far do you just want to tell them about um you know your first travel to japan when you were younger and how you got there and what the the inspiration behind that was uh yeah so um my initial introduction to bonsai was uh, at the age of 12 i saw the uh, karate kid movies uh, so I'd actually been doing karate as uh, kind of like an after school kind of hobby uh, since I was eight years old, actually. Um, but when I turned 12, I saw the Karate Kid movies. And uh, of course, you know, I think a lot of people, that's their first introduction to bonsai. Uh, so I saw the, the trees that Mr. Miyagi and Daniel Sun were working on in there, and I thought it was pretty cool. So I asked my uh, folks to get me a bonsai for my 13th birthday. So uh, they actually went to Home Depot, which is kind of like... Uh, uh, a home store here, a uh, hardware store, but they have a gardening section. So they, they used to, and I think some of them still do, uh, sell bonsai. Uh, so the first tree that they bought me was a little green mound juniper, uh, percumbens nana. Uh, and I'm pretty sure it was dead when they got it for me actually, cause it had the rocks glued on the surface of the soil. Uh, and, uh, you know, within two weeks I kept it on my nightstand next to my bed. So within two weeks, the entire thing was completely brown. Uh, but you know, after that point I was totally hooked on the art and it just sort of spiraled out of control and became an obsession through the rest of middle school and then into high school as well. Yeah. We've got, um, we've got the same sort of thing here. We've got a shop called Bunnings and it's a, it's a hardware outlet store, but they have a gardening section. Oh yeah. Yeah. And, uh, I remember that. Yeah. When I was down there before. Yeah. And we, we have the same we have the same kind of problem here. A lot of people get into bonsai and they buy one from there and then they sit them on their nightstand and then they die. And <laughs> you, always, you always see them on Facebook pages trying to ask for, you know, advice and stuff and everybody's yelling at them, right. put it outside. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I don't know if it's the, I don't know if it's the same situation down there as it is in the States, but the, uh, when you buy a bonsai or when you used to buy a bonsai at the home Depot, uh, it would come with a little, not a booklet, but kind of a tag that was attached 
to the tree that had two or three pages of information. And it always said, keep the trees inside, whether it was a tropical tree or, you know, a juniper that was a temperate tree that needed to be outside. That tag always said, you know, keep it indoors. So, you know, I think that's why, you know, countless numbers of those trees died uh, for, you know, people's initial uh, introduction to bonsai. It's probably not the best initial introduction, uh, you know, having something that's already dead or that's, you know, set up to die. Uh, but you know, 99% of people that I talk to, that's the, their first introduction to bonsai is that, you know, sort of home store, home Depot Bunnings, you know, type tree. So, uh, you know, for some people it ends up being kind of the launching pad for their, uh, sometimes their career in bonsai or just the, the hobby in general. Yeah. Uh, we do have the same thing. We have just a little tag that comes in ours, but it does say down the bottom only to be displayed indoors for a few days. Oh, that's much better then. But the the problem is is the the other information that it gives you, like your watering and um, sunlight and stuff like that, is very vague. So it says partial sun, like on a juniper, it says partial sun and water every day, <laughs> and it's like, oh, oh. that's awful advice. <laughs> Yeah, most definitely. <laughs> yeah, you're set up to fail right from the get-go. It's never a good thing. Yeah, that's but, it. I mean, you know, nowadays it's nice because, you know, when I was 13, I'm 33 now, so it's 20, 20 years ago. Uh, you know, back then there wasn't really uh, the internet that there is today. So it's not like you could buy something like that and then go on YouTube and look something up about how to take care of it or even just, you know, go go to a forum. There really wasn't much... Uh, in the way of bonsai information online back then. So, you know, you get a tree like that and then you got to go to the local library, you know, go through the, uh, the Dewey Decimal System uh, and find a book that's, you know, based on bonsai and then kind of study from there. So the, the first book that I was able to find was, um, I think it was the Sunset Bonsai book. I don't know if you guys had that down there. It was Sunset Publishing. Um, I mean, the book I think has been around since the 70s. Um, but that was the, the first book that I got my hands on, uh, that, you know, really provided some information about how to take care of the trees. But, you know, for most people, the, the first tree just dies because they're, they're basing it on that little pamphlet that comes with it. So it's kind of a shame. Yeah. I mean, a lot of the people down here, the first thing they do is they jump on Facebook or they, they try to look for a blog post on how to look after it a bit better, which is good because as you say, more information is available now and less of them are going to die on nightstands. Right. That's very true. And it seems like nowadays too, that a majority of the information online, I mean, there's a lot of stuff out there and there's a lot of bad information, uh, but a majority of it is kind of moving in the same direction, at least in terms of how to care for and keep trees alive. Um, you know, so when you go online, it's, it's, there's so much information, but it's easy to weed through it, I think, because there's some pretty prominent voices, uh, that are sticking out, you know, through the crowd. And those voices are saying essentially the same thing. So you can kind of get a good base to go off of, which is a, a really cool thing these days. Yeah. So after your first bonsai, when was it that you knew that you wanted to go to Japan to study? So I, let's see. Yeah, I was 13 when I got my first tree. And then uh, actually in my hometown in uh, Knoxville, Tennessee, uh, there used to be a Panasonic headquarters that was located there. And every year they would uh, take four high school students from the local county, uh, Knox County, to Japan on a two-week cultural exchange program in the summer. So I applied for that program when I was 16 years old. Uh, and got chosen for it. Uh, so I got to actually go visit Japan uh, 
you know, all expense paid, which was great. Uh, Panasonic put it all together. I flew over with three other students. Uh, we had a chaperone with us uh, and they carted us all around Japan. But the last two days of the uh, program, we actually stayed in individual host families' homes. Uh, so my host family, they, they didn't speak any English, but they managed to kind of suss out that I was interested in bonsai. So uh, the host dad, he got online. Uh, and, you know, again, back then there was very little information online, but there were two nurseries in Osaka where we were uh, that had uh, an online presence. They both had websites. So the next day in the morning, he woke me up and said, I want to take you to these two nurseries. Uh, in Japan or in Osaka rather. Uh, so we got in the car, drove to the nurseries. Uh, one of the nurseries happened to be Fujikawa-san's nursery, Kokaen. Uh, and it was, you know, the most magical thing I'd ever seen. I'd never seen bonsai like that uh, in my entire life. It was just spectacular. And, and in meeting Fujikawa-san at that point, he was, uh, I think, very intrigued that, you know, a 16-year-old American kid was that interested in bonsai. So he kind of made a joke right before we left. He said, you know, if you ever want to move to Japan and become an apprentice, uh, here's my business card. Uh, give me a call. Maybe we can set something up. And I, you know, it was a total joke, but I took it to heart. So I actually kept his business card. Um, and when I went to university, just a couple years later, I decided to major in Japanese language uh, and business. It was a, a dual degree at the University of Tennessee. But my goal was to eventually move back to Japan after I graduated uh, and try to do an apprenticeship. So, you know, meeting him when I was 16, that's what sort of, uh, you know, planted the seed in my mind of wanting to potentially become uh, a bonsai professional or at least try my hand at an apprenticeship. And if I failed at that or if I couldn't secure an apprenticeship after university, at least I had, you know, a degree in Japanese language and business and maybe I could move to Japan, uh, you know, to work for a multinational corporation or something. Yep. So I always uh, had that kind of in the back of my head from about the age of 16. So... When you when you did your apprenticeship, you already knew most of the Japanese language before you got there. If you majored in the language, uh, yeah. So the the way the uh, language programs at universities uh, in the states work, uh, and I would guess probably in most places around the world, uh, is when you're learning a language like Japanese or like Chinese, they focus almost exclusively on the re reading and writing aspect of the language to begin with. Because uh, you really do need that base to, to understand the mechanics of the language. And then eventually uh, you learn how to speak. So during the four-year program at the University of Tennessee, I really did not learn how to speak Japanese very well. I could read and write quite well. I could uh, probably read and write maybe 2,000 kanji characters. Uh, you know, I, I don't know how familiar you are with the Japanese language, but there's actually three alphabets uh, in Japanese. So there's uh, katakana, hiragana, and kanji. So the first two, katakana and hiragana, they have 42 or 45 characters, something like that. Uh, and it's all phonetic. So, you know, you have your vowel sounds and then you've got consonant plus vowel. So like the K sound, you'd have kaki, kuke, ko, right? So you learn how to write each of those individual characters. Um, and then the kanji is not phonetic. Um, it's based on, you know, individual meanings. And when you take the kanji characters and you combine them, uh, they can mean completely different things. So there are thousands and thousands of those characters. Uh, so by the time I finished uh, university, I could probably read and write close to 2,000 of those kanji characters. Uh, but, you know, I could pronounce them, but I couldn't really have like a full-on conversation in Japanese. So when I went to Japan right after I graduated to start my apprenticeship at Fujikawa-san's place, we had actually a pretty difficult time communicating for, I'd say, probably the first six months. Um, and then after about a year of being there, I felt pretty comfortable having, you know, sort of normal conversations, nothing, you know, 
esoteric or super deep or anything, but, uh, you know, just sort of basic everyday conversation, going out and having coffee, having drinks, talking, you know, like a normal person by about a year into it, I felt pretty comfortable, uh, in, in terms of that. Yeah. I, I know what you're talking about with the languages because, um, I actually practice a Japanese martial art called Shirinji Kempo and, okay. and all our, all our lessons and stuff are in Japanese. So I have a basic understanding of, you know, I, I couldn't really have a full on conversation in Japanese, but I know a lot of words and I kind of do know how the mechanics of it work a little bit. And it, it's, it's a difficult language and it's, it's multi-tiered and it depends on who you're talking to, what, you know, <laughs> what kind of, oh, yeah, what kind yeah, of that... words you say to somebody and, Right. That, that was probably one of the most difficult things to figure out when I got to Japan. I mean, we had learned, um, you know, sort of, uh, how should you say it? Um, kind of, uh, unconjugated Japanese. And then we learned how to conjugate verbs based on who you're talking to. Uh, so there's something called Keigo in Japanese, which is honorific Japanese. So if you're talking to, uh, someone, say you're, you work at a company and you're like a line worker, at a, a you know a manufacturing company or something. So if you're working on the line with somebody who's the same position as you and who's a friend of yours, you'll use a certain conjugation for verbs. But if you're talking to your boss and referring to your boss, uh, you'll use a different set of verbs for him. And then there's a third layer when you're in front of your boss and referring to yourself, there's a, a third conjugation and set of vocabulary that you have to remember. So it's almost like uh, you know three separate languages within one language. And, and you can really uh, inadvertently offend uh, people in Japan if you conjugate the verbs wrong or use the wrong set of vocabulary. So I, I did that multiple times with Fujikawa-san. As a matter of fact, uh, when, when I first got there, he uh, helped me search for an apartment. And uh, there's a, a, there are several ways to use uh, the word or say the word I referring to yourself in Japanese. And it depends on, of course, who you're talking to. So while we were searching around for the apartment, we, I remember we were in the back of a taxi um, that he had hired for the day to take us around to look at these different places. And uh, I referred to myself as ore in Japanese, O-R-E, which is actually, a, it's a really friendly way of referring to yourself. And I, I hadn't fully understood that that was the case. And he got really, really upset with me and sat me down at the end of the day and said, you're never allowed to use that word in front of me ever again. So you have to use the word like watashi or boku, something like that, which is a much more, uh, you know, diminishing term when you're referring towards you, uh, to yourself in the presence of a superior, like your oyakata, for example. Yeah. And when, when you're um, doing your apprenticeship over there and you're talking about stuff like the language, because you were saying that the first six months to a year was kind of sketchy um, with the language. Do you think that, if you fully understood the language going into apprenticeship, you would start off with different jobs. Do you think that maybe people who don't understand the language fully start off with simpler jobs, like maybe sweeping the floor and cleaning the nursery? Or do you think that everybody starts at that language just out of honor? Well, at, with those yeah, jobs, I think sorry. everybody, yeah, I think everybody starts at that level, um, regardless of whether or not you can communicate. As a matter of fact, um, you know, I almost felt kind of uh, the opposite effect with um, one of the other apprentices that we had at the nursery. So 
I was Fujikawa-san's first apprentice uh, that he ever had. He never had any before me. And then the second apprentice that came in was uh, Naoki Mayoka, who you might be familiar with or who your listeners might be familiar with. Um, he is now traveling all over the world and teaching, but he came in, I think in my second or third, second year as an apprentice. Uh, so he joined, uh, as a lower apprentice below me, the way that Fujikawa-san treated him versus how he treated me originally, it was like night and day. Like Mayoka-san got, you know, the short end of the stick. Most of the time he got, uh, yelled at more often than I did. Um, he, you know, had, uh, more difficult tasks, I think right from the get go than I did. Um, so I think that the reason that was the case is because Fujikawa-san kind of assumed that I didn't understand those elements of the culture to begin with. Um, so he didn't put that much pressure on me, but with Mayoka-san, it was an expectation that he's Japanese. He knows how this operates. He knows how he's supposed to act in these situations. So Fujikawa-san kind of took, uh, a harsher line with him. Yeah, because... There, that that does exist in Japan, doesn't it? When you're a foreigner, you can get away with a little bit more than everybody else. It's true. Yeah, they, they, yeah. There's this uh, saying that people used to use. I don't know if they use it anymore uh, in Japan. But like when I was an exchange student for a while uh, before I started my apprenticeship uh, over there, there was this thing that people would say like uh, "gaijin smash," which is uh, "gaijin" just means uh, foreigner. But it was basically college students acting like complete morons out in public you know, uh, drinking too much, or, you know, if you're getting on the train, for example, not buying a ticket to get on the train and just pushing your way through the turnstile to get on, or you buy a ticket that only gets you say two stops on the train, but you ride 10 stops. And then when you get to that 10th stop and try to get out, you just talk really loud and fast in English at the train, the people who are working at the train station and they get a bit flustered and they just say, okay, you can go, you can go. Right. So taking advantage of situations like that, I, I, when I was a, a college student over there, you know, you're 20, 21, you act like an idiot. But when I went back to do my apprenticeship, I realized how, uh, how much people doing that affects the way that the Japanese view foreigners quite often. Uh, and it's a really sort of, uh, it's not a positive situation. So I tried to be as much of an ambassador for the United States as I possibly could have been during my apprenticeship. But while I was there as an exchange student, it was a, a little bit of a different story. So you know, certain uh, things I regret from that short period before I started my apprenticeship. I mean, we're all young at once and we all, we all do those stupid things, but I mean, it's how you carry yourself after that. And I think, um, I think being in Japan, their culture and their politeness would probably rub off on you really quickly because it's, it's like nothing else. We even have it in Australia here when, when you come across a Japanese person it's hard to explain, but when you're communicating with them or you're dealing with them, you just feel a higher level of calm and respect. And but if you were to if you were to go into the heart of Sydney here and actually, you know, bump into Australian people, they'd be rude and <laughs> obnoxious and <laughs> kind of like New York in America, I guess. Yeah, yeah, no, it's it's definitely something that you notice. You know, I think if you just go visit Japan for, you know, a week or two weeks as a tourist, you'll notice that to some degree. But if you live there for an extended period of time uh, and sort of inculcate yourself into that culture, uh, when you do go back to your home country after, say, a year or two years or however long you're there, you really notice a stark contrast and you, you start to notice just how how much the negative attitude of people affects your mood during the course of the day, 
you know, so like in Japan, for example, if uh, you go out for, for food, you know, for dinner somewhere at a restaurant, even if you go to McDonald's, you're going to get like five star level service at McDonald's. They're the friendliest, uh, you know, service people that work there. If they, they'll never mess up your order, but if they do happen to mess up your order, they're very apologetic. Uh, they try to fix things. They're just, uh, you know, you get that that different sort of level of service even at the lower end restaurants. And you come back to the states, even at the higher end restaurants, I don't think you get the same level of service you get at McDonald's in Japan. <laughs> you know, in a lot of instances. So. Uh, yeah, you start to realize how, how much you actually interact with people in the service industry and how much it affects your mood when you experience something like that in Japan for an extended period of time. And when, when you step into a professional environment like a nursery doing an apprenticeship, do you find you get the opposite effect of that where they're much more strict and harsher on their apprentices? Yeah, but I think, I think what it is is, you know, even in, in like a restaurant setting, the reason why... The employees act that way towards the customer is because the management is very strict uh, towards those employees to get them to act that way. Uh, so, you know, when you're working in a nursery setting with your oyakata, your teacher, uh, he's the manager, the owner of the nursery, uh, and he has those expectations of you, you know, relative to the trees you're working with and also as you interact with the customers that are, uh, you know, the client base of the nursery. So, yeah, they try to set that. I mean, it's a pretty standard bar. Uh, but it's a, a high bar. So they try to set that right from the beginning and instill those values in you so that, uh, you know, when you interact with customers, not only there at that nursery, but when you finish your apprenticeship and start your own nursery or start traveling and teaching, uh, you know, that you have that understanding of how to interact with people in a proper way, um, in a polite way and provide the best service to those individuals. Cause you know, bonsai is, is a thing. So it's a, a uh, a product that you're making and selling, but you're also providing a service in styling and repotting in, um, you know, all sorts of different aspects. So it's a, both a service and a product industry. So you have to understand both elements of that, I think, to be successful. And a good oyakata, a good teacher, will try to instill those values in you um, as an apprentice. So Fujikawa-san was really, really good about doing that with all of us. So do you think that your oyakata, Fujikawa-san, do you think that he would... Or do you think that he ever plans to visit your garden? I don't know. So he's uh, he's a bit of a homebody. He doesn't like to travel. Uh, as a matter of fact, after I finished my apprenticeship, uh, while I was still living in Japan, I got invited to uh, Brussels Bonsai, which is the largest bonsai nursery in the U.S. Every year they have an event called Rendezvous at the end of May. And they bring in international artists from all over the world to do workshops and demonstrations. Uh, it's a really, really fun event. But they invited me and Fujikawa-san one year uh, to do it together. So we flew to the States. Um, you know, and I, I'm quite a bit younger than Fujikawa-san is, and I have a lot of experience traveling. So for me, the jet lag wasn't an issue. But for Fujikawa-san, he flew in on Thursday, on Wednesday, uh, and the workshops were supposed to start on Friday. But by the time we got to Friday morning, he hadn't slept in like 72 hours. <laughs> and then that same night on Friday night, he couldn't sleep again. So it had been a whole nother day that he hadn't slept. So he shows up for the workshop on that Saturday morning and his, I mean, his eyes are bloodshot. He looks like he's in a state of shock. Like, you know, he's about to have a heart attack. So, um, you know, that actually that night on Saturday night to try to get him to sleep better, I took him to McDonald's. We got him a Big Mac, uh, bought him a six pack of beer. Uh, and then took him back to the hotel. And then the next morning on Sunday, I picked him up and he said he never had a better night's sleep in his life. So, <laughs> um, you know, but after that experience, I think, uh, you know, he enjoyed it, but traveling that far is not something that he's used to. 
uh, and not something that I think he wants to do in the future. But I have invited him to the nursery. Uh, as a matter of fact, I tried to get him to come to our open uh, event where we did last year um, on September 1st, 2018. But uh, I just couldn't get him away from the nursery. But luckily, Mayoka-san, Naoki Mayoka, who I mentioned earlier, he was able to come and do some demonstrations uh, at that open house. Oh, that's cool. Hopefully one day he will come, though, yeah. on, you know, much more laid-back terms. Because when, you, when you're demonstrating it, it's probably very frustrating and, you know, you've got a task at hand and you're trying to do your best work in front of people. Um but I think if it's more of a laid back environment, just coming to visit and not under any pressure, it might make it a bit easier on him. Yeah, yeah I definitely think so. You know, I mean, even for me, I, I up until last year, I was traveling 250 days a year uh, teaching all over the world. I usually go to, you know, 12 to 15 countries a year traveling all over the States. But, you know, the travel aspect of it got easier over time, uh, but doing demonstrations never got easier and it still hasn't uh, gotten easier i still get nervous every time i get up in front of a crowd to give a demo as a matter of fact i gave a demo last night uh, for the nashville bonsai society uh, here in uh, nashville where our nursery is based they asked me to come out and, and talk to the club you know it's probably 40 50 people there last night so you know decent sized crowd for a, a bonsai meeting um, but you know i i just get super nervous even though i know what i'm talking about and i've planned everything out I still get nervous. So that, that never gets easy. Uh, and you know, and I, luckily here I was able to take my own material. So I was able to prep it up front, but when you travel, uh, you know, if I go to Europe, like I was in France just a few weeks ago, uh, giving a demo for the bonsai sun show and sell uh, that material was provided for me. So I, luckily I was able to kind of look at it before we started the demo, but sometimes you get to a location, they give you the tree literally 10 minutes before you're supposed to go up on stage and demo in front of 50 or hundred or 150 people. So it can be stressful, but it keeps you on your toes. I think it's not a bad thing. Yeah, that's it. It brings out your best work. Probably when you, when you do the things that you're most uncomfortable with, that's when you discover new techniques or new styles and things like that. That's very true. Or you, you learn to uh, really have a good poker face, you know, <laughs> not knowing the, the species you're working with sometimes, how brittle it is, how easy it is to break the branches. You know, I, I sort of tell myself that before I get on stage. Okay, there's a, a percentage chance, uh, no matter what tree you're working with, that the apex is going to break off or that main branch is going to snap in front of everybody. But, you know, if you can sort of mentally prepare yourself for the possibility of that happening, when it does happen, you know, you don't suck the air out of the room with the rest of the audience. You're able to explain what happened in a calm uh, fashion. So I've, I've worked on that for the last number of years, and I think I've got that down pretty good so far. I know what I usually do is if I'm working on a new species, I usually find a long elongated branch somewhere on the tree that I know I'm not going to use, and I cut it straight off and then try and give it a bit of a, a bend and a twist and just see what it can take before I start working on something that's valuable. <laughs> Yeah, that's a smart idea. I hadn't thought about doing that, but that that's actually a very good idea. Yeah, it kind it kind of gives you a gauge of what you can get away with when you yeah when you get to something that's valuable on the tree. If you're just going to throw that piece away, then give it a bit of a bend and see how far you can push it before it actually does snap, or what noises it makes just before it is about to snap. Because here in Australia, it's um, a lot of our natives they are very brittle. Um, that's why usually with, with a lot of our natives, you don't see a lot of big bends in them. And, um, I mean, maybe if somebody's been training them since they were young, 
then you'll see a lot of movement in them. But if it's um, Yamadori or, you know, more mature material, you'll see a a lot more of a different style because things like our bottle brushes and our melaleucas, um, our tea trees, the branches, I find you've got to bend them at very small angles and (laughs) try and get your movement over a distance rather than trying to get it in close. And then mm. maybe see if you can push the foliage back later with back budding um, back onto that movement. It's, yeah, uh, one of our things here, we've got, um, it's actually classified as an, as an obnoxious weed, but it's called an Indian mm. privet. And okay, the, the branches on those, they grow absolutely dead straight and they just shoot straight up. So if you can imagine, that's just vertical lines straight up coming off the trunk, and that's all the branches are. None of them go sideways, none of them go down, none of them have even a millimetre of movement in them. They're just dead straight. And when you try to bend them, they just snap. So if you see an Indian privet with any kind of movement in it, it's um, yeah, it's very valuable <laughs> because you know that whoever put that movement in it did a lot of work to get it in there. Sure. Yeah. Well, I guess, could you do sort of like a clip and grow approach with a species like that? Is that about the only way to design them? You could, I I haven't tried that yet. It might be worth trying to clip it and then put the pot on the side and see if it kind of takes a right angle and turns up. (laughs) Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It'd be worth an effort. I I remember, you know, coming to Australia, it was for the first time, this was, I don't know, probably four or five, five years ago, maybe. Um, I never worked with any of those native species that you guys have down there. So it was a really steep learning curve trying to figure out, you know, how far you could bend stuff before it snapped. Uh, but of all the species I worked with down there, I actually like the, uh, the Melaleuca the most, Yep. you know, the, there was actually one fella in, uh, in Melbourne, uh, and I forget his name, but he brought the uh, Melaleuca to the workshop and, uh, you know, it's just a giant bush, but we were able to trim it back. Uh, and put a little bit of wire on it. And then last year when I went back again, uh, you know, it had been like four years in between the first trip and the second trip, he brought that same tree back to the workshop again, and it looked awesome. It had filled in, you know, uh, ramified quite nicely. It had a really nice soft uh, appearance to it, and it looked like a giant tree that had been shrunk down and put in a container. So whatever techniques he had been applying to the tree in that uh, three or four year interim uh, works quite well on the plant. Yeah, well, we're actually doing a lot of experimenting here at the moment with Melaleuca alternifolia. It's a um, mm. it's a paperback kind of Melaleuca, and it's got very fine stringy foliage on it. Um, with, with the the trunks on them, you can bend them quite harshly. You can actually bend them to the point where they will snap, and they'll leave jagged edges where the snap is, and they will oh, nice. they will live on without dying. But the thing with that species is what I'm finding is if you move them slightly in an environment, um, they tend to dry up and just drop all their leaves straight away. So if I, Hmm. where I get my plants from for the nursery here, they're on like a valley floor. So they get a lot of dry heat. They get a lot of frost. Um, they get the extremes of all the weather down there. And I think because they're grown from seed down there, they acclimate to that environment. And then I bring them further up north here where we're a little bit more tropical, a little bit more humid. 
And the minute I bring them up here, even if I put uh, humidity trays under them, they drop all their leaves. They'll just dry up, drop their leaves. So we now have, in our hospital section, we bring them up, <laughs> we let them drop all their leaves, we ship them off into the hospital section, wait a month, they'll shoot all brand new growth again, and then they go back out. And then they can live on in our environment here. So we're doing a lot of experimenting with that, trying to find out why they do that. And it only seems to be the smaller, younger trees that do it. If you get a more mature adult tree, um, I just had one here that I'd brought up from that same growing operation, um, a much larger tree. I bent the absolute living daylights out of it. It was very tall and I bent it around so it would become a weeping tree. So all the foliage is basically upside down. And I was very uh, very ready for it to drop all its leaves and do the same thing that all the others did. But to my surprise, it flowered. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> so, huh. yeah, it's kind of th thrown me a curveball there. So we're trying to work out what the go with that is. But, you know, as you say, it is a very interesting species. Yeah, you guys don't really have any uh, like junipers or pines uh, that are native down there, right? That are like Yamadori that you can go out and collect like we have in the States or like in, in most of the Northern Hemisphere. We we don't really have junipers per se. Um, a lot of the junipers here that if you were to collect any, um, they would be in people's gardens. I, mean, I know our next door neighbors, they have the biggest juniper and I just... I eye it off every day and I'm, <laughs> I've even sent them a message saying if you're ever going to get rid of that tree or if you're going to move, let me know because I want to come and dig it. Um, it'd have to be 60, 70, 80 years old. It's massive. Um, but as, cool. as for pines, um, we do have a few species here, um, but they're, they're nothing like the black pines or white pines or anything like that. Um, not quite as interesting. I haven't worked on any of them yet. We have one one thing that's kind of similar. I don't know if it's in the pine family, but it's called a casuarina. Okay, yeah, I'm familiar with that. Um, I don't think it is exactly a pine, but it looks kind of similar. A lot of people work on them here, but I haven't touched them yet. They're a very strange species of plant. <laughs> yeah, they, they seem difficult to get kind of a refined look to them. Although I have seen a couple that, you know, people have really put a lot of effort into them and they turn out to look pretty nice, but it seems like they require significantly more effort than, uh, you know, like a, a normal pine that you would uh, typically use in bonsai culture. Yeah. See, we're, we're not, um, I mean, we're so jealous of you guys over there because your Rocky mountain junipers and stuff that you guys can collect. It's just absolutely amazing. And I think that's, um, at the moment, I spoke to Ryan Neal about this and I said to him that I think that that's what's making you guys lead the charge in the world of bonsai at the moment is those Yamadori trees, the collected junipers that you guys are getting out of the mountain and, you know, the stuff that you see um, the backcountry boys getting, some of their pines and, mm -hmm. oh man, they're just absolutely amazing. Yeah, it's it's incredible. I I tell people everywhere I go in the world that I think that 
of all the places in the world to be to collect Yamadori, the States is by far the best. I mean, like you said, the Rocky Mountain Junipers, those are really nice. The The trunks on those are incredible. The foliage is, is so-so, although you can find that one-off, you know, anomaly of, you know, really nice tight foliage that could eventually be propagated and then grafted on other Rockies, for example. Uh, but a majority of the foliage on, on the Rockies tends to be pretty floppy, so it can be a little difficult to work with. But We've also got uh, like one seed junipers, uh, which not very many people have really worked with. Uh, we've got quite a few here at my nursery, uh, ASAN, um, that, uh, you know, they've been out of the ground. Some of them have been out of the ground for as long as three years. Uh, but the turnaround time from collection to, you know, nearly fully styled bonsai with those is very, very quick. So I've got a couple here that have been out of the ground for, say, two and a half years. Well, next year in September, uh, was that 2020? Uh, they'll be ready for exhibition at the uh, the national the U.S. national show up in Rochester. So you're looking at you know basically three and a half years from collection to exhibition quality material uh, if you know what you're doing, and also if you're selecting for a tree that has foliage, it can uh, you know easily be developed into you know a nice padded looking tree. So those one seeds right now in the states, those are my favorite trees to work with. And the really cool thing too is that. We can get them in all sizes. So you can find shoheen ones and you can find trees that are, you know, three meters tall, four meters tall, five, six meters wide. So I've got one here at the nursery that's, uh, it probably weighs about 400 kilos, uh, which is insane. Um, and it's, let's see, it's probably two and a half, two and a half meters tall would be about right with the deadwood. Uh, if you include that in, uh, the overall height of the tree. Um, so, you know, we can get them huge, but we can also find nice small ones too, with a lot of character to them. So, uh, that's one that I'm really excited about, you know, developing going into the future. And then, you know, we've got tons of different pines here. Like you mentioned, the backcountry guys, they, they collect a lot of ponderosas. Um, the foliage on the ponderosas is not my favorite, uh, to deal with. It's quite long, although it can be reduced over time, but it's difficult. Um, but there are other pine species in the States that I think are just as good in terms of the trunk movement and have better foliage, like the limber pine, for example, it's nearly identical to uh, Japanese white pine. It's a five needle pine. It's got typically kind of that bluish, uh, silvery kind of color to the foliage. Um, the trunks are just incredible, unbelievable deadwood. Uh, so, you know, those are a relatively rare, uh, difficult to find, difficult to collect. Uh, but the guys at Backcountry have been collecting those. I've got a few other guys that collect for me that have been able to pull some really good examples uh, out of the mountains. Uh, and then another pine that I haven't really seen many people working with quite yet is one called Pinion Pine. Uh, P-I-N-Y-O-N. Uh, it's a, a native pine out, out west uh, in the States. The Native Americans actually, uh, in the past and even still today, they'll collect the nuts and the seeds uh, from those pines and eat them. It's a good source of protein. Uh, but they make really nice bonsai too. It's kind of a sort of a desert type species. Uh, and they usually actually grow at about like 4,500 foot elevation right alongside the uh, one seed junipers. You can find them growing in exactly the same areas in like New Mexico, Arizona, uh, Utah, uh, in that region. So yeah, I think I, I agree with you for sure that we are very, very lucky here in the States. And I think that's really, uh, one of the main reasons why we've kind of come up from the back end, uh, from being considered kind of a, a place with not such great quality bonsai to being one of the, the forerunners in creating, you know, quality bonsai going forward, uh, you know, anywhere in the world. Yeah, because, um, I mean, I wanted to find out from you what you think the biggest differences between <clears throat> bonsai in the West and Japanese bonsai is. Would you say that it's 
for the Japanese, it's more about the journey um, and the effect that the Japanese culture has on their work because they're so patient and they can put years and years and years of effort into a tree before showing it. Um, and <clears throat> that, that gets them world-class results. But with the Western style of bonsai, um, like I said before, America's starting to have a huge impact on that. Um, people like yourself and Ryan Neal and also overseas, people like Moro Stenberger um, are doing some pretty awesome stuff. But what do you think sets the two styles of bonsai apart the most? That's a very good question. I think there's... Uh... There's a lot of blending going on. So, you know, what we do in the States, particularly for those of us who have studied uh, in Japan for an extended period of time, like you mentioned, Ryan, uh, Michael Hagedorn, for example, uh, Tyler Sherrod, Matt Reel, guys like that who did full apprenticeships uh, in Japan. Coming back to the States, the native material that we have available to work with here is very similar. Uh, there are parallels in the States and parallels in Japan to what you can find. Uh, in the mountains at different elevations and different latitudes, uh, actually nearly identical. So like I mentioned before, the white pine in Japan and the limber pine in the States, they're almost indistinguishable from each other. If you set them side by side, most people probably wouldn't be able to tell the difference. Um, so, you know, from that perspective, there's uh, a lot of overlap in terms of the look of the species. But aesthetically, it seems like those of us who studied in Japan, we come back to the States and we're applying essentially that same aesthetic to the trees. So the trees that I see styled here with our native material by guys who have studied in Japan, guys and gals who have studied in Japan, uh, there really isn't much difference in terms of, of the style of the trees. Uh, it comes with, uh, the difference comes in sort of the selection of the pots, for example. Um, the way trees are displayed in the States, uh, for example, is very different than what you see uh, in Japan. Uh, so, for, you know, with the pots uh, in particular, uh, potters in the States and in Europe too, tend to focus a lot on um, kind of texturized, very, very, uh, uh, not, maybe flamboyant's the wrong word, but a bit louder, more, uh, more present, uh, or pots with more presence to them uh, than what you see in Japan. There's more focus on kind of the craftsmanship of the pot and trying to get it to match the tree without standing out too much. But the aesthetic in the States tends more, or at least it seems to tend more towards uh, you know, taking something that's got a lot of, of texture that maybe complements the bark in the tree and combining those things together. Um, and then, of course, the way things are displayed here, with the exception of, say, like the, the U.S. National Show, that's sort of a very uh, standard Japanese model in terms of how the trees are put on display. Uh, but even up there, the stands that people are using are a little bit different than what you've uh, seen in the past in Japan. So a little bit more experimentation is going on there, uh, which is a really cool thing. So it's kind of a blending of the two um but in terms of how the trees are styled I, there to me doesn't seem to be that much difference uh between the two particularly for those of us who studied in japan uh, and have come back to the states to settle here yeah that's interesting that you say that because i was going to ask you in this day and age of bonsai now that it's getting more popular and there's more material online there's things like youtube videos there's online courses this is probably going to be hard for you to answer because this is something that you've done. But do you think that for somebody to practice bonsai at the highest level, do you think they still need to go to Japan and study? Or do you think that somebody can practice bonsai at the highest level without studying in Japan? Do you think that 
going to Japan and studying and doing an apprenticeship adds an extra layer of, I don't know what you would call it, experience to bonsai work? I think, I, I don't think it's necessary for someone to go to Japan and do like a five or six year apprenticeship to be able to practice bonsai at the highest level. As a matter of fact, I have several students here in the States who have never been to Japan uh, who are making fantastic trees, uh, stuff that would easily compete with what you see in you know the Thai content of the Kokofu in Japan, and they've never set foot in Japan. Uh, that being said, I do think it's a good idea for people to at least go to visit Japan and see the Kokofu, you know, even if you're there for just a couple of days, just to see the trees in person. Because you can look online at photos all day long or videos, uh, you know, uh, forever and never really understand how the trees are built, the mechanics of the trees. So if you go see them in person, though, you can look up underneath the branch structure of the tree and start to reverse engineer how everything was put together. And a lot of the, the puzzle pieces that haven't really come together yet in your mind will start to form. Uh, and start to adhere to one another and make sense. Uh, and that's actually one thing that, you know, we have uh, tours that we run. My wife and I run tours to Japan every year for the Kokofu. Uh, people from all over the world come on those tours. And the, the number one thing that they say to me after going to the Kokofu for the first time is, you know, I thought that there were these rules that you were supposed to follow in terms of how to design trees properly. And I thought in Japan, it was sort of almost like formulaic. Uh, and cookie cutter, you follow those. And if you don't follow those, eventually down the road, you don't get to the best possible result. But in looking up under the branch structure of the trees, you notice that branches are crossing, trunks are crossing, wires crossing, you know, there's inverse taper uh, in the trunks or reverse taper in the branches. So all of those sort of rules that people have in the back of their mind, they don't really get applied to the trees in Japan uh, in the same way that people think they do uh, in the States. So, you know, I think, uh, you know, going to Japan and seeing that in person, it, it'll definitely change your perspective, but you don't have to go do an apprenticeship in Japan uh, to be able to practice bonsai at the highest level possible, I think. Yeah, it's very interesting that you talk about the Kokofuten and people being able to see those trees on display there and see work at the highest quality level. I spoke a little bit with Ryan about it when he was here not long ago in Australia, but I'd like to get your perspective on it. Um, do you feel like bonsai everywhere else in the world that's not Japan would have not just more monetary value, but more value as an art if we had something as big as the Kokofuten available to us anywhere else in the world? Because I think... What what I said to Ryan was I feel like in Japan, because they've got the Kokofu Ten, they've got all these nurseries that get very high-level clients that pay a lot of money to have trees looked after and styled just so they can go in that exhibition. And that kind of pushes the whole industry and it pushes everybody to be their best. Do you think that if we had something like that, say in the States or in Australia, that that would push our bonsai to the next level? Oh yeah, definitely. So, you know, competition definitely breeds, uh, quality or changes people's uh, attitude towards trying to produce the best quality thing, you know, particularly for people who are very competitive, uh, by their own sort of personal nature. Uh, they're the ones who are going to want to make the investment either monetarily or the time investment to build something, uh, of the highest quality and then put it on display. 
uh, to potentially try to win an award or at least win some sort of prestige uh, amongst their peers in the bonsai community. So I definitely think it's a good thing um, to move towards uh, building exhibitions that are that really high quality level. So like, for example, in Europe, uh, right now, I think that there are two exhibitions that really stand out above all the rest. And that's, of course, the um, they're calling it the trophy now. It used to be called the Nolanders Trophy, but it's, it's now called just the trophy uh, in, in Belgium in February every year. And then there's the uh, the Bonsai Sun Show in Salyu that I just mentioned. Those two shows uh, seem to compete with one another in terms of the quality of trees that go on display there. And it, there's no real monetary uh, award given at those. It's just a it, you know like a plaque or a trophy. But it's the prestige of getting your tree in that show because there's a selection process to get the tree in in the first place. So just to have your tree there is, is an awesome thing. Uh, but then to win an award, you know, you're competing with people from all over Europe, right? So you've got people from Germany, people from France, people from England, uh, everywhere coming in to display their trees. So, you know, there's, um, there's that rivalry there, but it's a friendly rivalry. Uh, but there's that prestige of winning, you know, and, and sort of knocking out all the other countries uh, in terms of the quality of your trees and your representative for your own country. So here in the States, it's a little bit different. You know, we don't really have that rivalry between states necessarily, um, you know, so it wouldn't be uh, it wouldn't manifest itself in the same way here. But just to have uh, a big exhibition like that. So, for example, like the, the U.S. National Show up in Rochester, I think that that show has has really helped in improving the quality of the bonsai in the United States over the last, I don't know how many years they've been doing it, maybe 12 or 14 years, something like that. Um, you know, you look at the exhibition book from that, uh, us national show from the first exhibition to the one last year. And it's like night and day between the two. So, you know, to get your tree in that show, again, it has to be juried, uh, before it goes in and selected. And then to win an award there, it's a very big deal. Those trees get, you know, their photos taken, those photos get shared all over the internet. People talk about them, you know, so, uh, I definitely think that that's something that, you know, if you don't have it in Australia, you should, you know, try to focus on something like that going forward. I, I do know you guys have, uh, what is it? The AABC yep. that, uh, puts together the big, a big show every couple of years, I think. Um, uh, I don't know if it's every year, but uh, in any case, you know, focusing on the quality of the trees in the exhibition rather than the workshops and the learning aspect of it, actually focusing on making the exhibition itself high quality. And then all the other things are kind of peripheral, yeah. you know, so it's kind of a backwards way of looking at things. Yeah. We, we have, we have lots of little shows here in all the different states. Um, most of them are just put on by the clubs and stuff like that, but none of them have the effect that the Coco Futen has on Japan. Um, you know, nobody's paying to have trees looked after or, you know, any stuff like that. Um, but, I mean, as you say, it, it does help to be able to go to exhibitions and see the quality of trees. And I know every time... I go and see a tree and I get an idea or maybe it makes me want to push my trees a bit harder and, you know, up the quality of the work that I'm doing here at Bonsaian. Um, <clears throat> it, it's definitely something that's, it, it's got to be there. There's got to be that presence of other people's work and that appreciation for other people's work. I think that's something that I really love about the art of bonsai, um, that there's never really any jealousy or nastiness when it comes to other people's work you just walk in and you appreciate every tree that's on the stand sure yeah, yeah i i wish it were entirely that way you know uh, like for me when i go into an exhibition 
even if I'm there to critique the show, I, I'm never picking out like the, the negative things that I don't like about the trees. I'm always going to like the one that stands out to me the most. I'm going straight to that tree and just enjoying it. Uh, and I do that for most of the trees in the shows when I go there. But when I interact with people um, in different parts of the world, um, you know, and particularly, uh, this might make some people mad, but particularly when I go to Europe, uh, to some of the exhibitions there, there's a lot of uh, sort of, you know, talking behind people's backs about their trees or, you know, that, that there isn't really a tendency to talk about the good aspects of the trees. It's always kind of a negative thing, like, oh, I don't like this tree because of that, or they could have improved that this or that here or this there, you know, but like it, it starts after a while for me personally, just to get a little bit irritating because I want to talk about like the cool trees in the show, what I really like about them. Uh, and it hasn't really moved in that direction in the States. Um, and I hope it doesn't going forward. Um, you know, it's always very cordial when you go to the shows and people are always, you know, asking for advice on, you know, how can I improve this? You know, what pot would look good with this? What do you like about my tree? What don't you like about my tree? But it's all sort of constructive criticism where when I go to Europe, it, it just seems to be a lot of criticism that's not necessarily constructive. Yeah, you know, and that's not everybody. I don't mean to poo-poo everybody in Europe. There's a lot of awesome people over there that are super friendly. That all they want to do is talk about the great trees. But it just seems like a lot more of that um, sort of negativity in the background, uh, that white noise in the background is going on. Yeah, constantly. I mean, I did speak. Um, I had Peter Chan on the podcast, and unfortunately, his audio cut off halfway through, so we didn't get the back half of the podcast. Mm -hmm. But he was saying in the back half of that podcast that they were looking at having in the UK a national collection, kind of like you guys have in the States and we have here in Canberra. But he said the thing that stopped it was there was too much negativity and people, you know, stabbing each other in the back and why is that person's tree in the collection and not my tree? So it, it's it's a shame when that stuff happens because those kind of things... I mean, I, I haven't been lucky enough to see your guys' national collection yet, but I know that ours in Canberra is next level. Every tree that is in there is just absolutely mind blowing and deserves to be there. Um, it's mm. if you want if you want inspiration to come back and start doing better work on your own trees, you go to that national collection and you know get a kick in the butt, basically. Right. Yeah. I think, I mean, that's true going to Japan too. A lot of the people that come on our tours, they're like, you know, they see the Kokofu and they say, all right, I'm going home and rethinking everything I've done up until this point. You know, some people take it kind of to the extreme and say, I'm going to throw everything I have in my collection away and start from scratch again. Uh, but for most people, they, they look at those trees in Japan and they think, all right, this is what I have been doing wrong. This is what I need to do right. So I'm going to go home and apply these new techniques uh, to my trees. So it's definitely a good thing, you know, even if you can't get to Japan to, like you said, go to the National Collection in Canberra or go to the National Collection in the States uh, or go to the Pacific Collection, you know, out in uh, Seattle or just any public collection uh, or any high-end nursery uh, just to see the trees and, and absorb, you know, what's there. Like Fujikawa-san, he used to do this all the time during my apprenticeship. He would say, all right, you know, during lunch, you got an hour for lunch, eat your lunch, and then go out into the nursery and look at the trees that are here, pick the best ones in the nursery, and then go study those, go look up under the branches, go reverse engineer the wiring that was put on. Think about how the directional branch was brought down from the other side of the tree to be in that position, what was done to it, and then work your way back from there so that then you can apply that aesthetic and those techniques to trees that you're going to be working on going forward. Yeah, I mean, you've you've been real lucky 
in the aspect, like you said before, that in a year you can fly to 15, 20 different countries. Um, so in, in your travels, what would you say has been the most eye-opening country in terms of trees, whether it might be their aesthetic design or if it's maybe just their material that they have to work with or even even their techniques? Because I know I've seen in places like Vietnam and India, some of their trees are so big that they've got to move them around on like flatbed trucks and pick them up with forklifts and stuff. So what's been the most eye-opening thing for you? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, the, obviously the differences in, in culture from place to place, that's always eye-opening, uh, regardless of whether or not it has anything to do with bonsai. Uh, but in terms of, you know, bonsai specifically, um, going to Spain, uh, Spain is in Europe, absolutely the top of the top in terms of quality. And there are a lot of reasons for that, that uh, I've discovered over the last few years, like uh, one of the former, I think it was the presidents, uh, one of the former presidents of Spain, uh, was a big bonsai patron and collector. Um, I think the King of Spain, um, at one point, uh, was a big patron of bonsai as well. So there's a lot of uh, support there and money from that end of it, but the quality of trees that they have available to collect, like the Sabina junipers, um, the Scots pines, the olives, uh, there's nowhere else in Europe where you can get that quality, uh, of those species. So, um, and I guess there's probably some cultural element there as well, uh, in terms of the amount of time that people put into their hobbies or put into art, um, is maybe different than other countries in Europe and definitely different than the U S. Um, so you see a lot of amateurs who are easily as good as any professional in Japan, right. That are, you know, just practicing in their backyard and they're not buying you know, finished trees, they're look, going out and looking for and collecting Yamadori themselves, or they're buying raw Yamadori and building it from scratch into world-class material in a very short amount of time. And these are people that have never studied in Japan. They may have visited Japan. They may not have visited Japan, uh, but they just have either an innate talent or they put a lot of effort into learning how to create that material or, or both. A combination of both is more likely. Uh, but Spain for sure to me is kind of, it's a, a next level kind of place. It's uh, just behind uh, Japan, I think, in terms of quality. It's moving in that direction. Yeah. No, I've seen a lot of the work that's coming out of there and it's absolutely incredible. There's, yeah, bonsai in the world at the moment is on the rise and just everybody's lifting everybody up in terms of quality and, you know, seeing them push. But the other thing I wanted to ask you too is <clears throat> you mentioned before that last year in September you had the opening of ASAN, um, your bonsai nursery. What was the feeling like for you opening your own nursery and seeing that come to fruition after working for so many years in somebody else's nursery and being been under the guidance of somebody else and now coming home you know to where you were born and raised and opening your very own bonsai nursery yeah it was uh it was a pretty awesome feeling because you know leading up to that at the end of my apprenticeship i stayed in japan but i started traveling um, and like i said earlier i was traveling you know 250 days out of the year um, and that was you know to try to make a living at bonsai uh, i didn't have you know uh, an influx of capital from, you know, uh, a loan, or I didn't have family that was, you know, providing me money. There was no trust fund or anything like that. I had to work, you know, to be able to make enough money, save up enough money to be able to buy a house, uh, and then build the nursery. 
Um, so, you know, for those four, four or five years, um, that I was traveling around, my wife and I saved every penny that we made during that period, uh, and then invested it all in building the nursery here. So, you know, when we opened, uh, on September 1st, it was really cool to see how many people had come from all over the, uh, East coast of the U S and actually some people from the West coast as well, uh, flew out or drove in for the, the opening event. So, you know, we opened the doors, I think at 9 AM on September 1st, and there was a huge crowd waiting outside the nursery just to walk in and see what we had done. And it was only, you know, the first iteration, the first, uh, sort of step in, in the nursery. So it was a very small area that we had built, um, for that initial opening. And we've since tripled the size just in the last year. Um, but you know, it was very cool for people to come down and support even that sort of small nursery opening. Uh, it was just awesome. Was it, was it a choice for you to open a nursery in America? Is, is it something you can do as a foreigner to open a garden in Japan or would it be a lot harder as a foreigner to open a garden over there? Yeah, it would be much harder to do it in Japan. Um, but as a matter of fact, my wife and I, originally we had thought about staying in Japan long-term um, and actually opening a nursery there and potentially a school. Uh, but the problem is that uh, for us, my wife, uh, is she's Chinese. I'm American, obviously. So neither one of us had permanent residency in Japan. And the only way really to get permanent residency is you have to stay, I think it's seven or eight consecutive years in Japan on a work visa and pay uh, taxes to the Japanese government each year consecutively for seven or eight years. Um, so for me, I was there on a cultural studies visa. My wife was changing back and forth between different visa types. Uh, so we would have had to have started from zero, despite the fact that I'd been there for nine years, she had been there for 13 years. We would have had to have started at zero, waited another seven or eight years to get permanent residency before we could take a loan out to buy a home and start a business there. So it just didn't make sense, uh, you know, in, in the long-term plan for us to stay there and do that. Plus on top of that, uh, you know, the Japanese market is very saturated with nurseries that are decades and decades, sometimes over a century old. Uh, so it's a very well-established market. So to break into that market, you'd have to have a pretty unique business model. Um, and you know, it is a possibility to do that. So there's actually one guy, a uh, friend of mine, Adam, um, He's from Pennsylvania. He studied at Monsan Nursery, uh, which is Mr. Kato's nursery, for five years. Finished his apprenticeship a couple years ago. His wife is uh, Japanese, so he decided, and they decided to stay in Japan um, and actually set up a nursery there. So he he and she were able to buy uh, a house, I think, last year, or the year before, and they've been working to to build a nursery. So he's the first foreigner to start a nursery in Japan, which is very cool. So I, I hope you know he's successful in that uh, venture going forward. But it's definitely a difficult thing to do more difficult than it would be to start a nursery in the States, I think. And I can imagine too, that with your touring schedule, like your travel, there's probably half of you that is excited to be traveling and seeing bonsai all over the world and attending these awesome bonsai events. But there's probably that other half of you that wants to be back home and building on the nursery and working in the nursery too. Is that, is that something that kind of tears you down the middle a little bit? A little bit, but you know, I, I traveled so much for so long that, you know, I, I like going around the world and meeting people and seeing the awesome trees and working with folks. But after a while, you know, being on an airplane for, you know, 15, 18, 24 hour trips, it just starts to wear on you changing time zones constantly. 
um, you know, it's not good for your health either. So it, it feels good to be able to settle, settle down and actually have people come to us here at ACM. We have intensive classes at the nursery now, uh, where students come in three times a year, uh, for three days each time. So all of those classes have filled up over the next year. Uh, so we're able to transition to me being here. So next year I'm only traveling 40 days out of the whole year. So compared to 250 days, it feels pretty good. Yeah. And the other thing I was going to ask you too is um, your YouTube channel. Did you ever expect it to take off the way that it did and kind of give you that presence that you have in the bonsai world? Because I know I have a lot of people that come here to Bonsai Inn at the nursery and, you know, they'll just be chatting and then they'll say, oh, you know, I've seen Beyond do this online or, you know, I listen to Beyond's podcast and... And there seems to be a lot of that. There's a lot of people that come in and they absolutely adore Peter Chan. Um, but, you know, when, when you started your YouTube channel, because you really just started doing blogs, um, really, and showing little bits of information, and then you started, you know, doing your travel travel vlogs and stuff like that. So did you ever expect it to kind of take off the way that it did and give you that presence that you now have in the world of bonsai? No, no. As a matter of fact, when I first started uh, the YouTube channel, I had bought a like a crappy little $100 uh, camcorder uh, for a, uh, a project I was doing. I was actually working on my master's degree during the last couple of years of my apprenticeship. I was doing that on the side um, just to, to have the degree as a backup. Uh, so as part of one of the classes, we had to uh, film a commercial and put it together and present it in the class. So I bought a little crappy camcorder, filmed that, and then I got hooked on the idea of actually filming what we were doing at the nursery. Uh, so I got Fujikawa-san's permission to film some of the projects that we were doing there. That's where the uh, the Bonsai Art of Japan series came about or how it came about. Um, but it was all just for fun. Uh, you know, As a matter of fact, the music I used back then, it, it was copyrighted music. So a lot of those videos have since been uh, banned from YouTube or taken down off of YouTube or the sound has been cut out by YouTube uh, because I had no idea how the process worked and I wasn't really focused on you know promoting myself or, or anything it was just for fun just to show people what we were working on in Japan um, so it's been really cool to see how it's taken off over the the last few years yeah and that's the great thing about bonsai media these days is being able to share your work with people around the world because traditionally Back in the older days, you would either see people's work in books or you'd actually have to travel. And like you said before, you can, um, you know, you see, you see all this work in books and online and you can, you can take away from that a little bit. Um, but actually traveling and seeing the work is, is that next level of it. But I think that the, the stuff that we've got now, like video on YouTube, it's, it's getting to that point where it is almost like being there um, in terms of learning. Um, when, when, back in the day, if you were to learn from a book, you'd have a static image and then you'd have some words. But now you can actually open up a video and get close-up shots of a branch or some wiring and actually see it in motion and see how it moves. And it's it's taking it to the, the next level and you've sort of been on the forefront of that with your YouTube channel. Um, and there's been a lot of people that have followed in your footsteps. Yeah. So yeah, that's, uh, one thing that has been really cool is that, 
you know, in, in Japan, when you go do an apprenticeship, uh, it's all almost entirely nonverbal. Um, so, you know, your oyakata, your teacher doesn't sit down and explain things to you. You are expected to sort of sit there and look and watch, uh, and then, uh, try it yourself and then get corrected by your oyakata and then, you know, uh, improve from there. So, you know, in the Western context, obviously people, the education system is different. So the people's expectations are different when they're learning something, they want you to verbalize what you're doing and explain to them what you're doing, which makes perfect sense. Uh, so figuring out how to take the lessons in Japan, which are all nonverbal and then turn them into verbal, uh, lessons, uh, and use that, uh, in conjunction with video was uh, a little bit difficult to begin with. Um, but doing that, when I go out and do demos now, it makes the demo process a little bit easier and vice versa as well. I can kind of play off uh, one with the other and come up with ideas in one that I can use in, in context in another situation. Yeah, so <clears throat> coming off of that as well, you were saying about in, in Japan with the apprenticeships and it was less verbal, you were just expected to sit there and watch. Um, if you were to have your own apprentices at ASAN, for example, how much different do you think that you would be as an oyakata than in Japan? What what do you think the main differences would be? I, yeah, I've actually thought quite a bit about that. So it seems like uh, most people who do an apprenticeship in Japan, whether it's a, a native Japanese person or a foreigner, uh, that the personality of the student uh, ends up reflecting the personality of the oyakata once that person has graduated. Uh, so, you know, I saw that with Fujikawa-san. He studied under Saburo Kato. Saburo Kato was kind of like a grandfatherly type figure, a fatherly figure. Um, you know, he was strict, but it was like family. And Fujikawa-san was the same way with me as an apprentice. So I have a feeling that that would uh, translate to how I would uh, treat an apprentice if we ever had one here at ASAN. Um you know, and I, I would probably sort of follow that same general model that we did in Japan, which was, you know, mostly nonverbal. So I don't think I would change it, uh, or change how I teach necessarily with, a, an apprentice versus how Fujikawa-san trained me. I think that nonverbal, uh, you know, repetition, working on the trees, not a lot of talking. As a matter of fact, if you came to Fujikawa-san's nursery on any given day, it was so quiet, you could hear a pin drop and there would be sometimes four or five apprentices there at one time. You know, nobody's talking, everybody's quiet, everybody's working on their trees, uh, which I, I kind of miss because nowadays all I, all I seem to do is talk all day, every day. <laughs> so I, I miss just sitting down and working on trees in like the dead silence of the nursery. Yeah, because you would have to think that the cultural differences would have a big impact on how an apprenticeship would work. Um, I mean, I'm not 100% sure because I've never done anything like that in Japan. But the difference in things just like maybe looking after the nursery and cleaning it, there's probably a, a higher maintenance schedule in Japan than there would be anywhere else in the world and probably how things are set out and just schedules and um, just day-to-day -day routine would have to be different there, would it? Yeah, I, I think so uh, to some degree. I've actually thought about that too. If we ever have an apprentice or apprentices here, uh, actually building out a schedule for them in terms of cleaning the nursery, that's been one of the most difficult things for me over the last year is keeping the nursery uh, in shape. You know, weeding, uh, right now it's fall here uh, in Tennessee, so all the leaves are falling into the nursery. And I just, I don't have 
any time. We have no employees here. I'm the only one running the whole nursery right now. So, you know, to, to rake the leaves, make it look clean for the new students that are coming in so it doesn't look like a mess, uh, it's difficult for me to keep up on top of all of that. So, yeah, if we do have apprentices here, it would be uh, scheduled out, uh, you know. And it was sort of like that with Fujikawa-san in Japan. He didn't have, like, a written schedule of, you know, every Monday you have to clean this part of the nursery and every Tuesday you got to clean the toilets. But it was kind of an expectation. Once, once you learn the general routine that it was up to you, to manage yourself uh, in terms of you know deciding, okay, is it time to clean the toilets? Okay, is it time to wash Fujikawa-san's car? Is it time to weed the trees? Uh, and then doing that on your own, like actually putting some effort uh, in, and being uh, you know attentive to those things as much as possible. So I would hope that if we had apprentices here, that you know eventually once they figured out the routine, that they would move more in, in that direction. Yeah, I don't think I don't think people really understand that until they do step into a nursery or own a nursery because I know here we've not only got the garden but we've got a retail store. So we sell, you know, all the tools and wire and pots and plus on top of that we've got YouTube channel, we've got the podcast. Um <clears throat> and now we're doing apparel, so we release a new design for apparel every week. Um Oh, wow. That's a lot of work. Yeah. So there's a lot of stuff and just even small things like, um, wiring out junipers, like gift trees, you do, you know, five to 10 of them. And then you've just, you know, you've lost an hour there and then going out and weeding and watering and checking all the trees. And, and at the moment here, we, um, we get unlucky here in a way in Australia because, in the retail industry, especially in a nursery, the two busiest times of the year come at once. So we get spring and Christmas at the same time. Oh, wow. So, oh, yeah, I didn't think about that. That's true. So even though our actual Christmas is in our summer season, what we end up with is people buy Christmas presents and things early. So they start buying the Christmas presents now for Christmas. Plus, we've got all the spring growth coming through at the moment. So we've got a lot of orders to be packed and shipped out. We've got a lot of people coming to the nursery. Plus, at the same time, trying to keep an eye on the trees and make sure the wire is not biting in too hard and trying to control, you know, growth on trees and make sure the apex isn't becoming too dominant. And it seems like it's just a 24-hour affair at this time of year and people don't really understand that until they, they step into that environment. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's, that's why, you know, you tell people, oh, an apprenticeship in Japan, you work seven days a week. You know, you might get one day off a month, but during the busy season, it could be two or three months before you have a day off. But what the implication is, is, oh, when you finish the apprenticeship, okay, the hard part is over and you start your own nursery and then you can kind of relax a little bit, but it's exactly the opposite. (laughs) I work more now than I did as an apprentice. You know, I'm working seven days a week. I'm working, you know, not only in the nursery during the day, but in the evenings doing emails, uh, editing video, doing podcasts like this. So there's so many things going on. But I think it's true, you know, not just in bonsai, but in any business when you run your own business, you know, as the owner of a business, you're putting your heart and your soul into it and you want it to be successful. And you want, you know, if you've got employees, you want them to stay on and, and feel like they're a part of a team. So managing all of that, it's, you know, seven days a week, 365 days a year, nonstop all the time. But, you know, I should have known that that was the case because when I got to Fujikawa-san's place, he literally takes off three days a year 
only January 1st, 2nd, and 3rd. That's it. He's there every other day of the, of the year at the nursery. Uh, so I should have known that that was, you know, the case, but it took me, uh, you know, finishing my apprenticeship and then starting to travel and work on my own to fully understand the implications of that. Yeah. It's funny because I hear a lot, um, you know, oh, you must be so lucky you get to work on all these trees every day and <clears throat> you get to do all this bonsai stuff. And it's like, man, that's only 10% of the time. You know, the rest of the time, like you said, you're answering emails and you're chasing up suppliers and stock and you're doing paperwork and taxes and pricing new stuff and <laughs> looking after websites and <clears throat> it's a crazy world. Oh, yeah, but yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it really is. Actually, I was telling my students this last weekend, we had a new group that came in uh, for the first session of the intensive class. And I told them uh, that the previous week I had finally been able to style the first tree at ASAN since we opened more than a year ago. I haven't been, a I hadn't been able the whole last year to sit down and actually style a tree from beginning to end. So about two weeks ago, I was able to finally do that for the first time. So it felt good. So hopefully, you know, going into next year, now that most things have kind of settled, uh, settled down to some degree in terms of the building projects and, you know, setting up benches and building poly houses and that kind of stuff, since all of that is mostly taken care of at this, at this point, uh, should be able next year to really start hammering down and working on trees. So that's why I've been neglecting my uh, social media stuff uh, over the last year or so. Uh, like Instagram, I used to post every almost every day on there, but this last year it was like maybe once a week, maybe once every other week, which, you know, of course, when you're running a small business is not necessarily a good thing. You should be trying to keep those things updated on a pretty regular basis, particularly if you're doing something that's visually based, you know, that you can take a photo of and, and post online. Uh, you should be doing that. So I'm going to try to dive into that a little bit more next year consistently. Yeah, I know what you mean because um, before I started the business, all my trees were very meticulously maintained and now I go out and look at them in the nursery and you can tell which trees are mine because they're all overgrown and <laughs> none, none of them are really worked on, but all the, all the trees that are in the sales section are all worked on and wired and looked after because that, that's kind of, of what course. takes up all your time now. <laughs> totally understand so for the listeners out there um your podcast is the bonsai network podcast yes that's correct and they can find that uh pretty much everywhere where you can find a podcast really oh yeah yeah it's on stitcher itunes uh whatever other apps the kids are using these days it should all be on there yeah, and also your YouTube channel is just ASAN, which is E-I-S-E-I-E-N. Yes, that's correct. Yeah, ASAN uh, Bonsai. So uh, you can type that into YouTube or you can type my name in and it'll pull up all the videos uh, that we have there. I think we've got, I don't know, close to 100, 120 videos, something like that. Um, and this coming year, we're going to be launching some, uh, new projects on YouTube as well. So, uh, for your listeners who are out there who like watching videos on YouTube, we're going to have a lot more content coming out starting in uh, January, uh, 2020. Yeah. I'll definitely be looking out for that. Um, cause I've pretty much seen every one of the vlogs from start to finish on your YouTube channel. So it's definitely, awesome. it's definitely <laughs> exciting when new stuff comes out, <clears throat> um, for the people who maybe want to come and learn from your school, uh, I believe your website is bjornbjornholm.com. Yep, that's right. It's uh, b-j-o-r-n-b-j-o-r-h-o-l-m.com. Yeah, and they should be able to find all the information for the classes and everything on there. 
Yep, everything's listed online. If you want to come out and visit the nursery, uh, we do it by appointment only. So you can just shoot me a, a message through the website and we'll set up a time and a date to come out and check out the trees. Awesome. Well, I'll let you go because you're probably a busy man and you've probably got a lot to do. And I've now got to shoot off and go and buy stock and get more plants and wire and pots and everything else that the shop needs. <laughs> All right. All the, all the exc- <laughs> We're both in the same boat then. Yeah, so hopefully uh, hopefully this week goes a little better because when I went to pick up stock last week, I picked up some 40-inch uh, bonsai pots, and they probably weighed uh, close to 30, 35 kilos each. <clears throat> and when I picked oh, one of Lord. them yeah, when I picked one of them up, it actually got a bit overbalanced because of the weight and inertia took over, and it popped my thumb out of its socket. Oh, good God! <laughs> yeah, and I, and it was it was funny because I I heard the the crack and I felt it felt like the bottom of the pot gave away and I thought, oh my God, I've just broken you know a four hundred dollar pot loading it into the car. And um, when I turned it back over and looked, it was actually my thumb that was out of its socket. <laughs> and uh, oh man, that's terrible. Yeah, man, it's still hurting to today. So for those people out there that believe. Uh, bonsai is an injury-free hobby believe me it's not <laughs> it most definitely is not i've got scars to prove it yeah that's it the uh scissors are very sharp oh yes <laughs> anyway thanks for coming on the podcast and thanks for giving us your time um as i said the the listeners are going to love this so um yeah thank you very much no no the pleasure's been all mine look forward to talking to you again in the future all right thank you